0: this is the working drummer podcast working drummer podcast featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions real drummers with real stories about making a living in music
1: Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and our guest this week is Jay, Jayzone Mumford. After establishing himself on the New York hip-hop scene as a DJ and producer, Jay got burned out on music, took some time away, and took up drums as a hobby. What started as a hobby became an obsession and eventually a second career in music. He has released a series of solo breakbeat records, been sampled by Mad Lib, Prince Paul, Alchemist and Marco Polo and recorded for Danger Mouse, Broken Bells, Lord Finesse, Pharoah Munch, Karen O, Michael Kiwanuka, DJ Newmark and many more. He is also the drummer and co-founder of instrumental funk outfit The Do-Rights. This episode is sponsored by Shure Microphones, and they've teamed up with Focusrite to offer the new Drummer Bundle Track Pack. This is Focusrite's Scarlet 18i20 USB audio interface paired with Shure's DMK5752 bundle, which is three SM57s and the Beta 52 kick mic, all on sale right now for $899. Coincidentally, I have that Scarlet interface. I got it about six months ago, and I gotta say this preamp and interface in one is a great piece of gear. It's compact and solidly built with full and transparent sound. It's been the perfect vehicle for me to learn the nuts and bolts of tracking, and I'm getting some really high-quality professional results in the process. I also recently got that mic bundle from Shure. Obviously, the 57 and the Beta 52 are indispensable for recording drums, and we've talked with many of our guests about how middle-of-the-road workhorse gear like this is more than capable of professional quality sounds and, in fact, is often the best choice. Check out the link in this episode's show notes to learn more about this great deal from Shure. As you may know, our newest sponsor is Air Gigs, and we're featuring a series of segments with founder David Blacker about what Air Gigs is and how drummers can best utilize that platform. We'll be featuring one of these segments each week for the next few weeks, but you can get access to all of them at once with a donation on Patreon. As little as $1 a month gets you access to this and all the other professional development content we've put up there from former guests. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer. So let's hear the next of these segments now in which David talks about how to build a strong client roster from the ground up. If you're just starting out, how do you compete, or do you compete with other users who have like hundreds of reviews who have been there uh, for a long time? Like, do you just have to kind of wait around for people to hit you up and build it slowly, or are there ways that you can be more proactive about attracting work?
2: A good number of people look like they don't put their all into creating their profiles and their and their they they're putting things in there. They're putting you know high quality assets or media or whatever, but they're not sitting down like taking concerted effort to say, hmm, how can I really make this appealing? Like what, what are the ways? So the first way I would say to compete is to really spend the time to create something, you know, that is, that is spe- that, that is thoughtful, you know, with all the components we talked about, like with audio reels rather than individual clips and high quality right. media and, and thought well thought out bio and service page all those things and then certainly you know featuring a service to get more visibility i think that's the natural way and then being super responsive you know to clients you want to work with and enthusiastic those are all the ingredients for for doing it and remembering you know setting your expectations too that there may you know there are people who who find like strike gold immediately. And then there are people that it takes a bit, like before they find either the right like combination of elements in terms of their service page or a great slew of repeat clients, you know? So if you're in that first batch, you know, it's easy to say, ah, you know, it's not going the way I wanted it to or whatever, but it's better to remember that, you know, you could be one client away from two albums worth of work yeah. you know so it's kind of like keeping that perspective uh, sort of keeps you focused and you know open to possibilities
1: and talk for a minute about the the featured uh, aspect of of profiles
2: yeah i mean it's it's very simple it's just you can pay thirty dollars for thirty days and basically when you pay um to be featured you go to the top of all the gigs, all the listings on the homepage, on the main browse services page, and then on your category page, and also in search results, which is one that people don't think about often. So if someone's searching, you know, like, um, you know, a funky drummer or something like that, if, if that's in your, you know, in your tags and in your title and stuff like that, you're going to be prioritized in that, in that search you know um,
1: oh that's cool to know that's cool to know so like if you're if you've paid to have your profile featured you want to make sure that um, you know the 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 tags you use in your profile are, are sort of geared to that because like right now I only have like drums drumming drum tracks drum loops, like I only have a few things sort of tagged, but if they're searching for a specific vibe or a specific genre. Yeah, I would um, definitely I want to include that I too. I would
2: definitely include those in your tags and um and in your description too. Like, you know, a lot of yeah. musicians are a little concerned about maybe pigeonholing, but you know, like it's not bad, you know, when you're when you're just starting to build your profile up to have something that someone can kind of sink their teeth into because a lot of clients, a lot of songwriters and stuff come at it from a very genre focused like our biggest searches on the site are genre-based searches you right know? yes and, and to be
1: honest with where your wheelhouse is you're saying exactly what what i was thinking matt because like you know you you want to kind of um put yourself out there and be like yeah i can play anything whatever you need i'm i'm your guy um but if you're honest with people and with yourself about like what your sort of specialties really are, and like like uh, David was saying, including those in your in your text and including those in your tags, um, then you're you're probably more likely to uh, get hit up for that yeah, thing. Yeah, and in doing the kind of music you want to be doing too, you know. Exactly, exactly. It's like I you know I I could play a metal track if I had to but <laughs> but i'm not you know i'm not looking for that kind of work
2: right right and and you'll do far better appealing to you know like letting that one go you know and dialing in the other like you you know what i mean in the end it will be much better off right uh you'll you've spoken to the people that you know you want to speak to you know it could accidentally turn into multiple yeah. records and man that would be bad <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah but be careful what you get good at (laughs) there's that thanks to david blacker of air gigs good stuff there again if you want to access all seven of these segments at once go to patreon.com slash working drummer
0: And Ludwig drum set, but you can't buy groove. You can buy the same microphones, the Beatles used on rubber Soul, But you can't buy groove. Y'all can play in 13-8 for 13 minutes. So we
1: talk on the podcast a lot about figuring out what kind of player you want to be and avoiding going down paths that your ego may be attracted to, but that ultimately don't really suit you. And Jay has a unique perspective on this. Because he came to drums later in life, he had a strong sense of his identity and priorities and also had the discipline to stay on track in pursuit of those. This has given him great clarity in how he plays, speaks, and thinks about music and drumming. And it was a good reminder that that kind of clarity is what we should all be after. So, hope you dig it. Here is Jay, J-Zone, Mumford.
0: Do right. Let's, uh... Groove.
1: In doing some research and stalking you on the internet a little bit, um, you mentioned that you started playing drums in 2012. Yes. I gather that, uh, you were not, like, in middle school in 2012. (laughs)
2: absolutely
0: positively not and if I was, then that would be a legal issue
1: <laughs> so um no. so yeah talk about like what your musical life consisted of before that and and this uh this kind of roundabout way that you came around to the drums later in life
0: well the irony is the very first live performance i ever saw i was 6 years old my dad took me to see chico hamilton at a public library, uh, my parents had split and he had moved to Connecticut and, um, at Greenwich, Connecticut library, <laughs> Chico Hamilton. So that was like my first live music experience. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but being an only child in the mid eighties and I lived in a town and I was back and forth between Jamaica, Queens and Westchester County and where I was in Westchester, Mamaroneck, and Jamaica, Queens, they're about as polar opposite as you can get. Mm-hmm. And I was an only child, so everywhere I went, I just felt totally isolated. And being an only child and kind of being left to my devices, I would go through my parents' record collections. And when I was in middle grade school, maybe third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my only reference for music was whatever my parents had. And unbeknownst to me, these records are 10 and 20 years old. So kids my age in the late 80s are listening to Run DMC, the hip-hop kids, and then the the other kids were listening to George Michael or U2 or, you know, Tears for Fears or, right. you know, whatever, you know, uh, the hair metal band, whatever was going on, you know, and then R&B side, you know, baby fa- L.A. Babyface, et cetera, Bobby Brown. So I was oblivious to all that. I was listening to Early Cool in the Gang, James Brown, BT Express, Brass Construction, Ohio Players. Jimi Hendrix, John Coltrane, Miles Davis. So I'm like 10 years old. And, um, you know, obviously the curiosity of looking at the back of the album jackets and seeing these band members with wild outfits and big froze made me want to do the same thing, even though nobody my age in the 80s was looking or dressing or acting like that. So I picked up the bass guitar in the fourth grade, and that was my first instrument. And I wanted to be a funk bass player. Period. That's mm-hmm. all I wanted to do. Bootsy Collins, Mark Adams from Slave. I had a Jocko Pastorius Hudson music, like one of those educational videos. Yeah, you know, there was a show called Rock School that used to come on Channel Thirteen with a power trio. So that was my life. Play, and I was a I was a self-taught bass player and played jazz band and school orchestra all through elementary and middle school, but. What happened was music in the late 80s and early 90s was very much drum machine program sample based. Right. And, when, and, and when you did see live bands in urban music, most of them were the touring bands. So like most records were, a lot of drummers were out of work. Everything was sampling. And at some point I said, I'm not going to find seven other guys and form the next of cool the gang. I'm going to be playing bass in my bedroom for the rest of my life if this is how it's going. So a right. light bulb went off. I have musical knowledge. I have access to all these records that nobody my age knows about. And I'm realizing that as I'm getting into hip hop, that they're sampling the records that I'm playing bass to every day. Right. And I said, I have a better chance doing that by myself than trying to find a band. So at some point, maybe I was about 15, I got into hip hop. And I became a producer and then became an MC and a DJ and did that whole thing. And I wound up having a career doing that. And I did that from the time I was 15, 16 until my late 20s, early 30s. And around 2008, I had a total burnout. I lost all the passion. I quit. I walked away, got a regular job, wanted nothing to do with music, period. Hmm. And then... I started working a day job and then I actually started working on a book, which came out in 2011. I released a memoir about my time in hip hop, the ups and downs, good, the bad and the ugly, doing Greyhound bus tours, just the nasty side of it. And the fun, it was humorous. It was meant to just be like, this is what a real musician's life is. I'm not living in Calabasas. Right. Like, you know, I I did shows with CeeLo and Narls Barkley, but yet I'm still like touring on a Greyhound. So, like, that's the life of a working musician. And the book wound up being more successful than all the rap records. But, <laughs> you know, but then people were like, well, are you going to come back? And I and this was around 2011, 12. And I was just like, you know what? I want to get back to music, but I'm just not feeling the hip-hop thing. And um, I just wanted to get back into music as a hobby. And my father said, well, you were a bass player when you were young. Why don't you do that? I was like, yeah. and. When I used to drive to my day job all the time, I used to listen to Spectrum by Billy Cobb, the album. Hmm. And I used to listen to that album all the time, even as a kid. It was my dad's record I grew up on. I love it. And I just started listening to Billy. And then I I would go on YouTube and look up Billy. Then I I discovered a video of Clyde Stubblefield playing behind James Brown at the Boston Garden in 1968, Hmm. uh, the day after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Right. And uh, Boston was rioting in Boston, and they were trying to stop the rioting in Boston.
1: Right, and um, and, and, and the legend is that like that concert, James Brown like basically stopped the riot. Right,
0: he basically stopped the riot. You just you saw on YouTube, you see him stopping the cops from throwing kids off the stage, and he's trying to squash the crowd. It's like a it's a it's a monumental moment in music. Yeah, but I discovered that concert, and Clyde took his solo in Cold Sweat, <laughs> and for some reason like watching his molar technique, like his left-hand traditional grip just messed my head up. And I always knew I was a funk fan, so I knew who Clive was. And and I just, a light bulb went off. I said, I'm just going to play drums for a hobby. Like, I'm never going to be able to do that, but I'm going to play drums for a hobby. So I bought a pad, some sticks, and, you know, at the time I was taking care of my grandmother who had dementia and she was ill, and I was living living caregiver. Hmm. (laughs) So I had the basement studio and, um you know, when I played drums, she couldn't hear me. My dad used to come help me with that. And then he got me a drum set. He surprised me. I'm 34 years old and I'm getting a drum set. <laughs> and I'm like, I should be doing this at eight. Like, right. so I can pay you back for this drum set. <laughs> so, you know, he got me a cheap Sonor Safari drum set to start up. And I, I didn't know what I was doing, but then I just started playing along the records uh, my trainer at the gym at the time used to be a jazz drummer, and he got me all down a rabbit hole with Gene Cooper, Buddy Rich, <laughs> that, Shelly Man. That's Band. great.
1: Your your personal trainer was a jazz drummer, or
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and when he was younger, and then now he's a he's a percussionist, a Latin percussionist. But when he was, in, you know, when he was younger, you know, in the '60s and '70s, he played jazz, so he got me into that. So then, you know, he's like, you know, I picked up a stick control book and all all those things, and you know, I just started. One one thing I realize is that if you can do something for six hours a day, suck at it, know you suck, and then get up tomorrow morning and want to do six hours again, <laughs> you're onto something. Right, right. Because I remember being a bass player. I remember being a hip hop producer, DJ, whatever. And then I remember writing my book. And then with drumming, it was the same thing. Like I have this gene where I get obsessed, and I'm very, you know, self aware. So in the beginning, like obviously I had no independence, no coordination, time, you know, was all over the place. But I had a I had an ear for drums because of all those years in music. It wasn't like I worked in IT for all my life, then picked up drums. Like I had a lifelong path as a musician, just not as a drummer. Right. So what I started doing was just like uh, you know all the all the basics the rudiments i took a couple of lessons with with a jazz teacher and, and, and you know started working on technique and stuff and then i just became obsessed and because i had to stay here during the day to watch my grandmother i would practice every day from 11 to 5 and she couldn't hear nothing because she was hard of hearing. Wow. so i'd be downstairs and then at night i would odd job or i would dj to pay the bills so i would work at night to pay my bills And then I would spend entire days practicing because you got to think if someone, like you said, starts playing drums in middle school, what's the routine? They come home, they get home at three o'clock, they do their homework. Right. And from four to nine every day they're playing that's how they get better. Right. So I'm right. Like, there's, there's no shortcut. Like I can't just waltz into this from a rap career thinking I'm going to play some drums. Like you got to put in the time. And, and at this, and this point,
1: business. like you, you don't have designs on like making this your next career. You're just kind of, obs- absolutely not. You're just obsessed. I, like I have to no, do this. I'm
0: just obsessed. I'm just obsessed. <laughs> like I love this and I can't help it. If I don't play, I'm going to go nuts. And because I had been away from music for so long, it's like, I'm passionate about music again. How do I protect this?
1: Right, right.
0: Because I lost all of my passion for hip hop and, and dabbled after, but never really went. I, I'm, I haven't been involved in like five years, I, I totally left behind. But and you, know, you, kinda, like, you kind
1: of you kind of uh you kind of blew past that earlier. But like when when you say you lost all your passion for music, what mm-hmm. what uh precipitated that and what did that look like?
0: That looked like in 2008, 2009, like. I had a very character based hip hop career and the character was not really like how I was as a person. And I got I just got tired of that. The people were very unreliable. I'm the kind of guy I show up early to stuff. I would always wind up getting stiffed at gigs because I don't I'd be the only artist on the bill to actually come to soundcheck. And then when the doors would open, nobody's there yet. and I got to play early. So I would have to suffer for being punctual. I got tired of that. Yeah. The record stopped selling. This is 2000. Five, six, seven tower records closed. CDs completely. CDs went from making like all this profit. It costs a dollar fifty to make a CD. You sell them for fifteen, eighteen, twenty bucks. You go from that to iTunes. Like the the money to be made, you know. So thousands of my CDs, I had to sign off on getting them melted down and destroyed. Wow. Right. So that'll do something to you. Yeah. Um, You know, and so I had to get all my bat catalog destroyed because there was no room for it. I totally lost the passion. I didn't want to hear about it. So when I found something that I love to do, even before I knew that I would eventually play seriously and then later on play professionally for a living, it was my first instinct was protect this at all costs. Mm -hmm. You know, practice, practice, practice listen, study, study. I bought all the books, the Jim Payne funk, great drummers of Funk and RB. I bought the Max Weinberg, the big beat. I bought star sets. I bought all, all the books about all the drummers who inspired me and the kind of music I was into and the kind of drumming that inspired me was almost in a bubble. It was like drummers from the early 60s to early 80s. It was like a 20-year period of drumming. Yeah. So I wasn't I wasn't even familiar with any modern drumming during this time. <laughs> I was only, I was focused on, you know, Purdy, Clyde, Mike Clark, George Brown from Cool in the Gang, James Black, Joe Dukes, Idris Muhammad, Jack Dejeanette, you know, and then you know, Elvin Max. Right. Brady Tate, you know what I'm saying? Like this is the lineage that I'm coming from onto maybe some of the earlier session drummers like Yogi Horton, and um, you know just the funk, soul, and jazz drummers because Earl Palmer, funk and soul drum, of course yeah. Earl Palmer, Hal Blaine, yeah. Uh, most of the funk, you know, Lenny White, all all the most of the funk and soul drummers that we sampled when we were doing hip hop. They started out as jazz drummers. Right. So there's a very specific language in that playing.
1: There's also a very specific sound. Like yes. it it continues to surprise me, and I, I keep having to remind myself that like the sound of a lot of this drumming is a jazz drum sound. Like it's a
0: jazz drum sound. Higher and toms I wide out. open. Front head on the bass drum, all these different things. And I figured that out first mm-hmm. because i had a production background when i started recording myself i accidentally discovered that i had an authentic drum sound now the problem with in hip-hop production is people have they kind of look down on live instrumentation because it always sounded too clean you have drummers playing you know playing studio stuff for hip-hop guys and they're banging on the cymbals there's like there's no symbol. Like, it's usually a hi-hat and it's very it's a specific sound and when i started recording myself my chops weren't there yet but i found the sound so what i started doing is recording myself just playing my favorite breakbeats and i started releasing breakbeat records and they started people started sampling them like danger mouse and mad lib and like made like big people started sampling them because of the sound and because of the patterns. And even though there was a lot of candor in my actual playing back then, I had the sound. Yeah. Because I understood this language. And I remember when I first sat down with a teacher to take a lesson, like early on, we were playing paradiddles. And I started playing paradiddles, like do get do get do get get do get do, do right, left, right, right, left, right. He's like, yo, you're playing a paradiddle like it's a meters record. <laughs> and I was like, Well, that's what I listened to. He's like, No, 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 no. And I had to learn how to play a drum corps style, play it straight you know like uh, yeah, so yeah. It, was, it was like so so the the swing and the sound of those records those funk records and then which eventually became the hip-hop records because of sampling so my entire musical dna has a specific drum feel a specific drum touch and a specific drum sound yeah so when i started playing i naturally went there right mm-hmm. so i learned how to play that way instinctively and that became my style and then I had to learn later. If I want to be a working drummer, I have to learn the traditional styles as well. And that came later. So I went backwards. Most drummers learn the rudiments first. They learn that they learn to play a paradiddle straight. They learn that two and four is your bet so your backbeat has to sound the same solid because this singer is going to look back there. She's he or she's going to need that. Like yeah. when I first started I would do like, and that was, you know, I wasn't developed enough to play that solid two and four, but stylistically it worked. Right. Because the imperfections in those funk records are what made them so great. Because back then you had one take to tape. It cost a lot of money if you got a good take, but the drummer didn't nail every backbeat perfect. Right. There was no Pro Tools. There was no editing. We, we don't have money to redo this again. Right. So the mistakes in the playing... The human error in the rec like the tempo would fluctuate, it would breathe, it would expand and contract.
1: Right, but all of that shit was less important to them than the vibe. Like and the vibe, capturing exactly. the vibe for that take. And w- so what, something I've yeah. noticed about your playing is that um, it is like it's not uh it's not very drummy, you know, because no, it's because not. you came to this later in life. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's based on feel and instinct.
0: Exactly. And, and I learned that way. And then later, like me figuring out what a devil's egg rudiment was, was just like of no consequence. Like right. it was just like, <laughs> it's like how are my drums tuned? How have, and then one thing I also learned I'm playing in a basement, even though my grandma can't hear, I'm still in a house. I can't hit that loud because right. my neighbor's. We'll hear it from the street. So playing quietly, I discovered by accident, the softer you play, the better the microphones pick you up.
1: I am fighting that battle (laughs) with myself so hard right now. Like I'm I'm looking, (laughs) you know, because like my whole background is in jazz, you know, I'm not a stranger to a lighter touch. Um, mm-hmm. but for some reason in in my room here especially like I'm I'm listening back to recordings of myself and just being like man why why are you playing so goddamn loud
0: <laughs> it's yeah, and and the thing is because I like most drummers like I said how do they learn they start in a garage band or they start in church or whatever right? and they start by doing shows chitlin circuit and they play nightclubs where they're not mic'd yep. or a horrible sound man playing crappy backline kits so they have to bash Right. And then when they get into the studio six, seven years into their career, they're like squeezing and squashing the mics with the bashing. I had the opposite problem. I learned to play delicately and dynamically early. So I sounded great in the studio. But when I started playing live five years in, I got two Marshall stacks on either side of me (laughs) and I'm getting drowned out. And I'm playing traditional I'm playing traditional grip with this little flick. And I'm trying to like be heard amongst in a rock because I play in a rock band too. And the next morning, I'm dunking my arm in ice, yep. <laughs> because I'm like I'm slamming out the backbeat, trying to get it, and I'm trying to do these little rudimental six stroke fills. And it's not. And I'm thinking like, yo, the audience can't even hear no ghost notes. Like I got two big amps, so I had to learn how to play. How most people start playing, I learned that later when I eventually became a touring drummer, and when I eventually started doing gigs i had to thank god for cell phones because i could look i recorded every show and on the way home i listened in the car to how can i make this transition from making breakbeat records and doing sample replays and studio drumming how do i translate to a live player whereas most players go the other way so like how do i do this on stage how do i not have a brain freeze when i come to that tricky fill how do i Make sure the time is solid. How do I give value to every subdivision and every quarter note so that the space is there so everybody feels comfortable and not go off a cliff when I'm going around a field, not try to be too rudimental, just simplify the playing and make it effective for the group as a unit and make everybody comfortable. Like that came way later. Yeah. So it was bad and not only did I start playing at 3435, I went entirely backwards. With how I started playing, like now, you know, every morning, one hour on this thing, <laughs> the reflex pad. Yeah, yeah. You know, shout out to Guy Lakato who sent me this uh this reflex pad. You know, like every now, now I'm on it. You know, like with the rudiments and, and the tr- more traditional drumming stuff, like that came a little later. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, it was entirely on feel, instinct, sound, and trying to emulate the drummers who inspired me. And coming from a producing background how do i get an authentic good feeling good sounding sound and then later on it's like okay now i got to clean up my flams i got to clean up my singles yeah. you know i got to i got to work you know i got to work on my left foot vocabulary a little more like all the drummy 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 stuff came later after i had already established you know what i wanted you know how i was going to play it's like okay now how do i improve that so that no matter what musical situation i'm in I can find my
1: way, right? And you t- you refer to that as drummy stuff, but like what you were talking about, you know, on the drummy spectrum, still isn't very drummy. You know, yeah, you're, yeah. you're just trying to get your technique to a place where you can externalize like what you hear in your head, um, right? Right. And I think a lot of drummers go so far past that, um, either out of um, you know insecurity or ambition or something. Like I've I've been guilty of it so many times where you see another drummer do something. And immediately you think you're like, oh, I got to do that. I got to incorporate that into my vocabulary without really thinking about whether or not that is going to serve you in any way. Not only for the kind of music you play, but just for the kind of drummer you are.
0: Exactly. And I learned that you can have a style and you can totally appreciate someone else and appreciate it from the outside and take bits and pieces and apply it to you. Yeah. You know, like I, I saw a re, like a modern drumming video last week with like these different, you know, the left foot hi-hat, you know, just, you know, um, grooves, to, you know, spicing up your grooves with like, clo- you know, closing the left foot in between. I've been doing a lot of linear, you know, stuff lately between the left foot and the right hand. I noticed that. You know, yeah. so, so he did. Uh, so this guy was doing like a real, like he was playing a groove really fast, you know, and I was like, I'm never going to, I'm not playing fusion. Like I'm never going to. So I slowed it down. I cut out chunks of the linear phrasing, put a couple of buzz rolls on it, swamped up the feel and made it swing a little more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Used some old sonar teardrops with the front head on <laughs> and then created something new. So my thing is I'm inspired by everybody, even though I'm even if I don't aspire to play like somebody, I can take a piece of the language and mix it with something else. You it's, know, it so. sounds
1: like it sounds like you kind of ended up on uh, Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover there. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah <laughs> and it's, no, it's, like, it's it's
1: another thing you backed into, you know, because like drummers of um, drummers of the '70s generation heard Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover and it fucking blew their minds, and they were like, yeah, "Holy shit, yeah. I have to do that!" And you backed into it where you saw some other dude doing something like eight times faster, but it was the same concept. And you were like, okay, let me yeah. just break this up and slow it down. And you backed into that same thing.
0: <laughs> right. Like, like what Zig played with the meters or what Garibaldi played with Tower of Power, or what yeah. Mike Clark did, or or what the modern guys do now, or what Gad was doing. It's all a linear concept. It's just, it's the application. And then how you tune your drums, whether you play it straight or swung, the notes you choose to leave out, Yep. the language you're using, you know, like I, I've been dealing with, you know, dealing with the bluster, like that whole thing, <laughs> you know, and it's like, <laughs> I look, I, I look at, I look at like Tony Williams doing it. I'm like, Yo, I'm never going to be able to use it in that way. And then, you know, or, or uh, Steve Smith or somebody, yeah. and then it's like, okay. I'll take the blush and then just put it in my thing, you know, and just find my way. So I have a, I can be inspired by everybody. I've learned something from everybody I've watched, whether I cared for or aspired to play like them. I try to make it a point to be a sponge and absorb what I can from everybody. I'm not an egotist like that. Like I don't look at like, Oh, he's better. I just say, okay, let me appreciate them for what they do and who they are. Then I try to pull and then learn from them and then try to take it into the shed and create my own thing with my own tones, my own tunings, my own feel and my own language, you yeah. know, and that's kind of that's kind of the I did it that way more so than like a typical school. I mean, I did take lessons like I took a couple of lessons with Mike Clark and a couple of jazz teachers and stuff, but I never and I learned to read on a basic level, but I, because I started late, like I knew I was never going to be a, a church chops, like guitar center drum. I, I see that. And I'm just <laughs> like, it's so, it's so foreign to me. Yeah. I would never, I just watch it as, as like, and you know, somebody who appreciates drumming, but mm-hmm. I don't watch that and be like, man, that's the ultimate lo-. It's almost like respect for the craft. Right. Rather than aspiring to be, it's like, it's like somebody who plays center and he's, Six eight, three hundred 300 pounds, and he's watching like a 5'11 guard like Allen Iverson run up and dunk the ball and go between his legs. He'll never be able to do that, yeah. but he can respect it as, a, as an athlete. Right. You know, so it's the same thing.
1: what point in your drumming journey did it move from like a just you know an obsession a hobby to uh this could be my next career
0: uh it well i started to monetize it by accident with the breakbeat records i started releasing breakbeat records for people to sample um, because i had the sound and i had a knowledge of those breaks but i hadn't had full you know i wasn't playing with people yet i was just in my basement and then at, at a certain point, like the, I started making, you know, monetizing it and making some money with it by accident. I'm like, OK, so there's a revenue stream. But I got you know, I tried to m- mesh the hip hop world with that. And I came back and made a couple of hip hop releases with the live drumming all the way through. But I, w- I had no interest in touring as a hip hop artist. I had well, when I would do interviews, I'd only want to talk about drums. I didn't want to talk. I just rapped on this whole <laughs> album and made all the beats And I was like, I don't want to talk about that. I don't even want to talk about it. And then a light bulb went off. Like, why are you doing this if you don't want to do it? It's like, if you're going to be a drummer, be a drummer. Don't try to use a hip hop career as a vehicle for drumming. Take the loss, take the sacrifice, start from zero, respect the craft that you're moving into, and fully dedicate yourself to that because one of the most unnerving feelings as an artist is knowing that everything your audience wants from you makes you want to jump off a building and everything <laughs> that you really want to do, they don't care about. Mm. That ball went off in 2016. I had a disastrous South by Southwest show. Hmm. Disastrous. I had to rap and play drums. We didn't rehearse. We didn't practice. I was telling the guys, we got to practice because by this point I'm I'm jamming and rehearsing with local bands a lot and we're playing for four or five hours. And I'm like, this is what it takes. These are real musicians. And I'm in a group that was kind of had like, we had marketing management promotion. We had an impending record deal. We all had you know, decent names in hip hop. Like we had all the machinery, but e- we didn't have the work ethic.
1: Everything but the rehearsal.
0: <laughs> everything but the, but, but the discipline. <laughs> and, mean, and meanwhile, I'm playing with a, mostly of a, a musicians who are mostly unknown, but we're practicing f- four or five hours a day together, building our chemistry because we have integrity and, and we want to be good and we want to be, be the best musicians we can be. And we went out there and stunk it up in Austin. And, you know, when I came back, I left the group and I said, no more. Like, and my grandmother, had, she passed away like two weeks before that. So I was carrying a lot of weight. Yeah. And I just said, I was always a jack of all trades, master of none. And I said, you're never going to go anywhere in life with that mentality. Like, you're going to have to, like, if you look back, all the greats I admired, you know, you're Bernard Purdy's, you know, your Jack DeJanet's, your Tony Williams, your Buddy Rick. They, They, I mean, even back then, they didn't have to manage social media. They didn't have to write press. All they did was play drums all day long. That's why they were so good. Yep. So now, as an artist, to survive in 2020, you have to create videos. You have to create quote unquote content. You have to do social media. You have to ship your own records at the post office. You have to upload your music. To digital distribution. There's no way around that as an independent artist. So so now four hours of your day is just spent on things a record label and manager used to do. Yep. So as a musician, now you already lost four hours of working on your craft. Okay. Now you got four, five, six hours left in the day. If you're doing six, five, six things like I used to do, you're spending 15 minutes on each thing, you're never gonna get better. Yeah. So it's like I made all these strides with drumming when it was a hobby. Once I tried to m- go back to doing hip hop and mix it with the drumming, my six hour practice days became two, then one, then 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of going on what I had acquired so far as a drummer and using it to do hip hop. And I said, nah, man, if if I'm going to do this, I have to, out of respect for other drummers, out of respect for other musicians, you have to devote to this craft and start from zero. You can't, you can't take currency in Venezuela and go buy something in South Korea. It doesn't work that way. So any, any accolades I had as a hip hop artist, any, anything like that gone. And right. it was, da- it was daunting because in 2016, I'm like, damn, like I still had a DJ gig cause it paid a lot of money. That was once a week. And I eventually got fired from that because I wasn't focused. I started to focus more on the drumming and the DJ thing just became an albatross, hmm. you know, and then, but then when the DJ thing ended, it was like, now I'm just doing drums and composing full time. And I was like, yo, I'm going to end up in the poorhouse, man. But then, <laughs> but then after a couple of months, when I was working on those two things all day, opportunities started to open up. Now is a tour. Now it's, you will know, get me around this sample clearance. Now it's like, yo, I want you to do a whole Drum for a whole album, a, a whole package. Right now, it's like okay, this journey you're on is interesting. You're interviewing all these drummers. Let's create the Red Bull Music Academy thing, at, where you your, your interview series with all these drummers. That turned into something. And even though it's, you know, like what you're doing, it's like podcasting, journalism, research, writing. It's related to drumming. Right. So while I'm while I'm interviewing Gregorico Rico or Questlove or Bernard Purdy, I'm still working on my craft because I'm picking up information to take into my drumming journey yeah right it's interesting it's it's related you know
1: it's interesting what you were talking about um of being a a jack of all trades because so many young drummers uh especially if you go to school um it's sort of hammered into us that like you got to play everything you got to learn everything um you know every every style every type of gig um and like there's some merit to that but i think we uh especially as younger drummers get caught up in, uh, just not it, like it, it, it results in not being focused. It, it results in, um, not really thinking about and getting in touch with, uh, the kind of player you want to be and the kind of music you want to play. And it might, it it might result in like a lot of gigs, a lot of like random gigs. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Right. But I kind of, I reached this point in my career a few years ago, um, where there just didn't seem to be any momentum in any one direction. Like there was, Mm. there was activity, you know, I was playing, I was working, but, um, I just, I just didn't seem to have any direction in my playing. And now, especially after COVID or still during COVID fuck. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to, uh, stay in touch with, uh, you know, that like that direction that I want to go, the kind of playing that I wanna do. Exactly. Um, and it's like since you came to drums later in life, uh like during your obsessive period, it sounds like you kind of uh just absorbed a little bit of everything and was just everything all the time. But I think right. because I mean correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, because you were an adult and like knew yourself a little bit, you kind of avoided going too far down that path of just the unfocused busyness. Uh, of, you know, what what can become your career if you just keep saying yes to everything.
0: And 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 I learn I I very rarely I don't want any accolades for drumming from hip hop. Like I said, it doesn't work that way. But one thing hip hop did teach me is that when you have your own sound and you don't try to do everything, people will come to you for you. And then your your stock rises for what you do. Yep. Okay. Yep. So and and the fact that I started at thirty five, I'm never going to be in a guitar center drum off. It's just never going to happen. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just not. But who cares? But like who cares? <laughs> but, but one thing I think and, and what I lacked in like motor skills from fifty years of playing, I had in knowledge of making records. Mm-hmm. Knowledge in a specific sound. Like I have guys who pros who've been playing 30 years who ask me like, yo, how do you get that sound? Like I have a different, the knowledge of how to make records, knowledge of what makes these break beats that everybody sampled, what makes them effective? Why do people sample that? I know that because of my background. So I try to zero that in and then be versatile on top of that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I have my thing. It's kind of like Dairon Jones playing with Jack White. Or Gregorico playing with, um, uh, Gregorico played with Weather Report, like Gregorico is like a groove drummer, like he doesn't sound like Peter Erskine, you know what I mean, or yeah. Eric Gravit, or, or or you know, or anybody else like that. But he came in and did his thing, and then just put, you know, spun it so that it could fit Weather Report. But, you know, Steve Arrington replaced Billy Cobham playing for Coke Escovedo, the Escovito Family Band. Still, uh steve Arrington is pure groove four on the floor and you know he i remember interviewing him and he was saying like how am i gonna fill in for billy Cobham?" like i always say if you were in a drum battle if i was in a drum battle with buddy rich i would just do the best steve jordan imitation I could. <laughs> right <laughs> because, yeah because because how are you gonna you know what i mean yeah. like so it, it's like For me, I'm going to try to learn as much as I can as a drummer, but I I came along so late that for me to learn to play heavy metal, the likelihood of me getting that gig and that gig impacting my career is so slim that I'm not going to set up with a double bass kit. I might use a double bass kit to work on independence, but I'm not going to get out on stage and try to be pyrotechnic. That's just not... Yeah, I don't have the time. You know
1: what you said about people coming to you for your thing for what you do. It it reminded me of the five years that I spent in L.A. And you know my my mentality in L.A. was was wanting to be a jack of all trades and wanting to sort of put myself in in position to like do any gig and have this uh, you know um, wide variety of of stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I realized when I was there is like if I want to play you know, four different kinds of gigs, four yeah. different, you know, kinds of music. I've got to get in line, especially in a town like LA, I've got to get in line behind like a dozen dudes who only do that thing.
0: Exactly.
1: Um and I I think you can also go like too far down the road of being a specialist and making your thing like too specific. Um, yeah, yeah. But that that made me realize, like, I don't I don't know if this everything all the time approach is,
2: <laughs>
1: is yeah, really like, where I, it's at, because nobody knows you for anything, then.
0: Exactly. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm relative, I'm new to this world. So I don't really speak out on that, because I'm just like, I'm just still learning myself. But all I know is what works for me. And you know, what brings the best out of me as a player and like i said i'm like i play in a rock band that's not really my thing but then mitch mitchell was an elvin jones buddy rich guy playing rock with hendrix right so like like so mitch mitchell being a jazz guy playing rock that like to me that's the epitome of where i want to go like it's still mitch mitchell no matter whether he's playing with you know uh, georgie fame or Jimi hendrix you know, or Steve Arrington playing with Slave and then playing with the Escovitos, or Gregorico playing with Sly Stone and Weather Report, like, he can still be him and adapt a bit, but he's not going to go fully into a fusion drummer, you know, and it's like, so it's like you want to learn the languages of other things and then incorporate them into your playing so that when they hear bits of that language, it gives you the feel of that music, but like, like, for instance, like we opened my band, the do rights open for the scatterlights right before COVID at Brooklyn Bowl. And the drummer was playing that ska stuff and his feel was so, so, so authentic. Yeah. I was just like, that's all he played. And then the way he was, he, he had his stick real tight. He was choking it. And I was like, man, if I were to do that, I would have like carpal tunnel in a week. Yeah. But, But. I'm never gonna be able to do that gig, but I was listening for his feel, and I was like, I could take pieces of his feel and play it my way. But I'm never gonna use his technique. I'm never gonna be as authentic. So right. it's like we can do. I can do Scott ish stuff. You know, it, it's kind of like that. But like when you go too far with trying to just be a typo blood of drumming, yeah, where you can you can donate to everybody. I mean, <laughs> you can work, but then you can't. It's hard to be. And like most of my favorite drummers were actually weren't session guys. Most of my favorite drummers were drummers with bands.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, most of my favorite drummers weren't, like, the 70s, 80s session guys. Like, they were, I mean, with the exception of maybe Gad, but, like, most you know, or Purdy, but Purdy sounds like Purdy, Gad sounds like Gad. They were session guys, but they sounded like them.
1: And they both sound like them, whether they're in the studio or in an arena. Like, it's just them. I was talking to... um the last interview I did, it dropped today. Actually, I was talking to uh, Dan Bailey, um, and he, you know, we were talking about like, you know, the difference if there is one between session drumming and live drumming. And he brought up Gad. He was like, "Look at a guy like Gad. You don't think of him as a session drummer or a live drummer. He's just yeah. a drummer. He's just Gad, and he brings Gad to everything he does, whether it's yeah. a piano trio or Paul Simon or like it's just Gad."
0: Yeah, and, and and Purdy is just Purdy. Yep. So like some of the session guys, they they got session work because so many people wanted them. Right. And and they went in and did them, and they became session drummers because of the the popularity of their style and what they brought to the table.
1: That's what Dan Bailey said. He was like, it, you know, they, they didn't get hired because they were great in the studio or great, you know, live. They got hired because they were great drummers and and they were able to bring their authentic selves to the studio and the live gig. Um, exactly. And it reminds exactly. me, it reminds me of the great actors too. Like, there, you know, there are a few actors who can just be anything. They're chameleons, right? Like Meryl yeah. Streep, Gary Oldman, like they can be anything. But most Ooh. actors... Um, sort of, like, you see them in every role. Like, they turn the volume up and down on on parts of their personality to fit that mm. role, you know. Yeah. But they don't transform. They just, they're some version of themselves. And I think that's what you're talking about with your playing. That's what I'm trying to get to with my playing. Yeah,
0: that's what, that's what I'm trying to get to. And like I said, I play in a sweet soul band, straight-ahead funk band, and a rock band. But with all of them, I do me is just... I make adjustments but the rock band you know i'll play you know i'll play the two and four a little louder take a little bit of the ghost notes out and the sweet soul band you know it's it's like a lot of quarter note snare drum stuff and then with you know with my funk band with the do rights it's just we get to funk which is what i love to do you know so it but it's all within my wheelhouse you know what i mean like it's not like It's going to say people, you can tell it's me no matter what, even though it's slightly different, but I'm never going to be able to play in a heavy metal band because it's just not (laughs) like for me to put time into that journey is that Jack of all trades thing. I'm taking time away from mastering my own lane and I want to master my lane. And I remember Daru Jones telling me that. And I saw what he's done, you know, with, 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 his whole thing. And he started out doing, you know, gospel chops and all that stuff. And then he found something that works for him and people come to him for that. And people from Jack White down to Farrell Munch, it it you know, and, and it showed me that you can play with a lot of people but still be yourself if you establish yourself to a point where people can see where it could work for them. Yeah. And that's the thing. Convincing people that what you do can work for them
1: and that's easier that's so much easier said than done and it's a long process because like first first you got to figure out what the fuck your lane is right yeah you got to be self-aware enough to to just sort of realize like this is who i am this is what i want to do let's move forward from there then you got to have the discipline to like stay in that lane and not not get distracted not get insecure like it's a you know it's a it's a Never-ending. It just seems like a never-ending journey of like, it's
0: a never, <laughs> a, no, like nobody gets to the mountaintop, man. It's like it's a constant journey, but that's what makes it fun, and that's what keeps you growing. Being uncomfortable is how you grow. Yeah. Every few years, you hit a wall, whether it's with your playing, whether it's with the band you're with, whether it's with your your professional connections. Like being uncomfortable is is so common for me. Just from even just from coming into drumming, like hip hop. My hip hop fans hated my guts for for like abandoning it suddenly. And then people who were in the drumming world who you were know, drumming snobs who went to school, they're looking at me like, well, what the hell? Why is he here? It so it's like I had, I had no home. And I still had to, you know, but I said, you know what? I'm not going to allow any of that to derail me because I know what that feels like to lose passion. Like, I found something I love. I'm going to protect it. So regardless of who's rolling with me, I'm just going to roll forward. And then if I pick up people along the way, that's great. And then there are hip-hop people who appreciate where I went. And there are people who I never thought would appreciate what I do, and they do. Because I'm like, man, he's got too much chops to like me. <laughs> and then it's like, yo, no, but, but it's like all the gospel chops drummers love Steve Jordan. Because Steve <laughs> Jordan does Steve Jordan. Nobody respects a quarter note like Steve Jordan. Oh, man. So it's like, and, and you know how it's so hard, Steve Ferrone too. Like, just the restraint. Yeah. To respect the note value and to play to be so confident in your playing like I'm just going to play wide open. Yep. And then you and then when you try to play wide open and you listen back and you hear that it's not as solid you're like, "Damn, that's hard." Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> like to play that wide, like you really got to be hearing 30 second notes to play that wide. You just can't play them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I it, saw it, a like, video.
1: I saw a video of uh, Chris McHugh do like exactly what you're talking about a, a couple months ago. Um, And he was just, it was, you know, kind of like a when the levee breaks kind of groove at like, yeah. I don't know, 70 BPM or something. And he played a few 16th notes, but not many. And like every note was just like rooted in the earth and the, the sound and the vibe of it was like, that inspires me, that intimidates me, that blows my mind way more than any, you know, Noti note IG uh, stunt that I'm
0: seeing. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Like, the, like time is the scariest thing. <laughs> it's, the, it's the scariest thing. Like even when you're playing a notey thing. If it's a linear type of thing and one sixteenth note is a hair too early, in the back of your mind, you're like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, God damn it. Like you're playing, you're playing this Garibaldi or this Mike Hart thing, and it's even, and then you you rush or drag one note. Yep. And then in the back of your mind, it gets to you mentally. And then the whole thing starts to get sloppy and and it's like. Right, you know. After and, that, you know. But then you realize how you know the the time is the most impressive thing to me.
1: Yeah, you know? and it it doesn't even have to be like a a linear, you know, Garibaldi type thing for that to happen. Like that happens to me playing fucking eighth notes. Like
0: well, it happens. what <laughs> happens wide open. Yeah, yeah. You know, or even or even with an uneven boom, boom like sixteenth note <laughs> kick leading, like you could have it swinging boom, boom, and then mess up and do a straight one boom, boom, and you're like that little uh, hair. Not, yep will mess up the rest of your day because you're like, that's how sensitive it is. And once, once I ran into that hurdle, I said later for quintuplets and this and that, and you know, devil's egg rudiments and trying to play a paradiddle of 300, like, that's what I need to focus on because that's the, that's what makes everyone else in the band feel good. Yep, And that's what gets the audience up.
1: Yep. You know what I mean? Totally. Like that,
0: that's, that's what keeps you working. I'm in the know? same, so,
1: I'm in the same place with my drumming. Like I'm really trying to resist the urge to like, you know, tack more things onto myself. I'm just, I'm trying to like, um, distill and purify and polish the just the basics of time and sound and feel and it's fucking hard.
0: <laughs> it's it's hard. And like the other day, I remember there was some kind of metric modulation challenge. Uh
1: Oh yeah, that everybody wants this? to rule the world.
0: <laughs> and then like you know, people started making a joke of it, and it was hysterical. Like, but the jokes, like, are, the I best,
1: I, the so jokes are the best,
0: man. They're the jokes are the best. Tim Tim Box did one that was a total joke, a gag, and I I had to call Tim. I was like, that made my day because obviously it takes a lot of skill to be able to do that. But at the same time, I'm like, what is doing this challenge going to do for my, <laughs> for my career? Right. You know, like I was like, I'm going to sit that one out because like, whereas what, like when Jordan Rose did the, uh, the Christmas thing. Right. You and I both, open. you and I both we did both that. Did yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's wide open because you can do whatever you want. Right. You know, Damon, Damon from uh, Discussed the Percussion, he, he did the percussion thing. It was, you know, my man, Chris Gelb, he did something with the Toms and, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's wide open. So something like that is fun and you can put your own twist. That's what I mean. Like applying your thing to something as standard as a Christmas tune. Right. 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 But still being you, whereas the Tears for Fears thing, I was like, let me just go work on time today. <laughs> is, <laughs> like the, is, the one,
1: <laughs> is the one you're talking about where the where the guy just like he played the regular two and four, but he played it like a straight 16th note instead of the triplet feel?
0: I didn't see that one. No, it was it was I Tim Tim where he just turned it on. It's like dur, dur, and he went <laughs> oh, ah. Then he started, then he started singing the lyrics to it. And just he stopped playing and he just started doing all these crazy chops and then just started singing the lyrics and threw the sticks away. The one the one I saw
1: <laughs> the one I saw, I can't remember who it was, but um like you know it the the intro of the tune started the da and then he he came in duple meter at the same tempo just like and his caption was did i do it
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i like that it's just because it's like again like i respect the skill it takes to do that immensely but like with what i'm doing that's not going to like further my journey or expand me into you know like what I do, that's not going to attract a new audience to it. You know what I mean? Right. You know, something like the Christmas thing, it's like, all right, let's take this Christmas thing and funk it out a little more. Yeah. You know, like, so so it's just, you know, restraint, whether it's restraint in not playing too many notes or restraint in turning down gigs that you know aren't good for you Mm -hmm. or restraint in going down a rabbit hole of things that you're 99% not going to use. Restraint has been the most important discipline and restraint are the most important things I've learned in, in this path. Like knowing when cutting things out so that the things you focus on get that much bigger and that much better. Yep, And, and that, that comes from totally getting rid of the rap career in full now I'm playing drums for rap artists I grew up listening to 30 years ago that I never had access to. We were peers <laughs> doing the same thing. They didn't know who I was. Then I started doing drum sample replays and drum Lord Finesse Munch. I started working with them as a drummer. They didn't know me as a they they knew me as a rap, but they didn't even know my music. They just said, "Oh, he's around." Now they're calling me. Right. And it was like that. That's the payoff of not trying to make a beat today or write a rap or do a show or trying to work on this. But like. The focus, the discipline of cutting, trimming the fat, and cutting things out, it, you just see more clearly, and then your focus, you start beelining towards it. Yeah. And and that's and that's that's been the last five years has just for, for me that's been the, the the main thing, man. Just like cr- cut out the clutter and the noise, and put the time into where you want to master, and then it'll it'll start to show. my good man that you threw was a watcher looking good than a plate pleated neck bow you a monster
1: are you still doing the uh, give the drum or something
0: red bull folded Uh, Last, well, the Music Academy came to an end last year. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like I was just, I consider myself extremely lucky to have sat down with those 12 to 15 drummers that I interviewed that changed my life entirely.
1: So give, (laughs) give, uh, give the drummer some started as like a, an article series and and kind of evolved into some podcast interviews. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it started with my interview. My favorite drummer is George Brown, Cool in the Gang. Hmm. Like I said, I love drummers who play in bands, like because they just, they're them. And they weren't, it wasn't all about endorsements and clinician. It was just kind of like, this is my band. I'm the anchor of this sound, you know, and and that's that. So George, just being a fan of Cool in the Gang, like that was like my dream come true to sit with him and, you know, hear about all those stories, what he, you know, what drum? I'm a nerd about kits. He's like, yeah, I started with a little green satin flame Gretsch kit. And I'm like, that's the kid on that album. Like I was nervous <laughs> to that level. And right. I went and found an old owl satin flame Gretsch kit after that. I found one, wow. painted an arm and leg at Maxwell drums for it. But <laughs> yeah. I was like, George, but then the response to that was so good because not only was it about drumming, it was about, life as a musician the political climate a lot of these guys were playing through jim crow stuff segregation yeah you know, man Wa- watergate vietnam uh you know got, you had all this stuff woodstock and altamont you had all this stuff going on man and it's they, amazing
1: they have- it's amazing how many guys of that generation and and women are like you know you you know them for their career you know them for their playing but like the the stuff they're carrying around from the political, like I interviewed uh, El Negro about a year ago yeah. and he talked about, uh, like he was in a rock band in Cuba as like a 15 year old and him and his band got thrown in jail in Castro's wow. Cuba for, for playing rock music. Like he spent time in jail as a teenager for playing rock drums.
0: Yeah. these, these <laughs> I mean, like it wasn't nothing for like all those jazz drummers to carry a pistol. Yeah. Because they're playing in places where they can't eat there. Right. And hotels, they can't stay. And, and, you know, so a lot of, especially some of the older drummers, they have some stories, man. Yeah. And so I said, I'm not going to make this interview too drummy. I'm going to mix it with a little bit of life stuff so that people who might not be drum nerds will get enjoyment out of this read. And then maybe I could bring them into the world of drumming and bring drummers a more human side of the music yeah so when that when that when everybody loved that interview drummers and, and non-drummers i decided to continue it so i had taken a lesson with mike clark i met him at a jazz club in new york um and i interviewed mike clark and he had the same kind of stories being in oakland with the pan he played in the band for the panthers wow. <laughs> a, white, a white guy playing in the black panthers band man you know and it's it's like you know coming up in that oakland during that time gregorico same thing david garibaldi same thing bernard purdy coming up you know going from an all-black high school to an all-white high school in maryland in the 50s you know what i mean like yeah. the 60s so there's that you know so you get all these stories with, with some of the older drummers you know and and um so I wound up interviewing about 15 heavy cats that inspired me. And some of them weren't known to the public, mm-hmm. but but they, but they know what they play. They don't know them by name because they've been sampled a zillion times. The record has 5 million views on YouTube. But back then, the bands weren't credited. Right. right. Guys played on records you never knew. You, didn't, you never knew who they were. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, and these guys are in their 70s. And, you know, especially 2020 has taught us, like, we're losing people at a clip. And even in 2015-16, I had the foresight to say, I better get these guys now. Yeah, You know, ha- Harold Brown from War. I mean, he had, some <laughs> cra- he had crazy. And even the business side, like, trademark stuff, too two factions of the band and they can't perform using their own name because one owns it and the other one doesn't yeah. guys came up childhood friends and now they don't even speak.
1: I know, man. And, and,
0: and, and it's just like, do you hear it. I tried to add that to the drumming stuff, you know, okay. You played a, a Rogers 2012, 16, but then you also were dealing with, you know, uh, Vietnam being drafted into the war. So it's both sides. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we, we have tried to take the same approach on, on this podcast because, you know, if, if you want to play drums for a living, then, uh, you know, there's this whole world of, of technique and gear and, and, and all that. But I mean, it's, it's half the battle if that the rest of it is psychological, interpersonal, um, you know, and we we really try and uh, highlight that. And so I wanted to ask you, like, over, over the course of all these interviews we've done, you know, one of the overarching themes and lessons that we've learned doing all these is that um, there's, you know, th- there is no one definition of success. There's no one right way to do this. Every oh. single person's path is different. Um, and there are just, there are a million ways to succeed in music and there are a million definitions of success. Um, yeah. so I'm curious in the interviews that you've done, um, have, have you come away with sort of like a, a big theme that ran through, um, all the, all the interviews you've done with all these people?
0: Yeah. Stay away from drugs. <laughs> 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 that's okay. that's a great I'll one. <advice>. Stay away from drugs and beware of the drum beware of the drum machine. No. Um, <laughs> That's a bumper sticker no. right there, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the metronome pissed a lot of people off. But but um nah. Um, it's just like a lot of the, the the value I got in the interviews was something that I that I actually knew from my, that I eventually learned on my own. Is like try to always stay in touch with what got you started in the first place, as hard as that is to do. It's easy to say hard to do. I already knew that from the hip hop stuff, but then these guys, like I look at how their careers, and also adapt a bit, but on the same token, you have to be willing to adapt because a lot of the guys stopped playing just because like when the drum machine came around, you know, like Steve Ferrone was saying in the 80s, they would just have him come over and, and do overdubs on the toms and then overdub crashes because everything was the drum machine you <sighs> know and then a sampler they would sample a bar view or something like that you know so some of the guys like you know like david garibaldi got into like teaching and stuff like that because his blood his you remember his saying his heart and soul is tower of power he did like tom johnston not not tom uh, was it he did like some session work in the seventies, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And David has the facility to do be a session drummer, absolutely. Right. The technique, the ability, but Tower was his thing. And then Tower was dealing with, you know, there was drugs, and you know, there was like problems with the band. And then, you know, so then that's when he started doing like a lot of clinics and videos and, and stuff like that. You know, so then like guys, he I know he taught. So like seeing these guys, and then George Brown became the keyboard player for Cool in the Gang because. He said when they started making big hits in the seven in the 80s, he's a jazz drummer by nature. His, his guy is Elvin Jones. So after a while, when they're doing Celebration and Joanne, it's just it got four on the floor for two hours. And he said he would get bored. He just said, I got bored, man. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I just got bored doing two and four every night. And he stopped playing drums sometime in the 90s. But he was an explosive funk jazz drummer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and his, he said, I like to get on the set and swing. And he said, I'd be having people screaming for two hours and I'd be like at the hotel, like, well, what did I do? I just played two and four for two hours. <laughs> and then, you know, he eventually grad gra- you know, gravitated more to composing and playing keys. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some guys adapted like Ferrone is still out there. Purdy's still out there. Garibaldi's still out there. And some guys. You know, they transitioned because it wasn't as fun. So seeing all those stories, you know, Robin Russell, who played with New Birth, Nightlighters, you know, he wound and Sylvester and all that stuff. Funk, King, King, he wound up playing out in Griffith Park in L.A. He gets up at four in the morning and plays all day till the sun goes down. Whoa. Yeah, he drums out. It's called drumming in the great outdoors. Like, look up Robin Russell on YouTube. He just brings his little kit with the studs on it. He has a custom kit and he just plays to nature. And he does that all day and he gets this audience drumming in Griffith Park. Wow. He does, you know, like small nightclub gigs, but it's like at the end of the 70s, he was saying, you know, back then New Birth was a 15, 20 person organization. And back then, if, you know, they were cross collateralizing things and if records weren't selling or concert sales were down, like. They would reclaim your instruments. They would yeah. leave you with a bill. Man. So a lot of guys a lot of guys ended like when disco came in and the drum machine and sampling, like a lot of guys left the seventies out of work and just totally burnt out.
1: Yeah. And yep. They,
0: they had to either get into something else or they had to adapt to the times. Or, you know, you have guys like the jazz guys, like you have uh, you know, Blakey and Elvin Jones. They never got it. they stayed doing what they were doing when jet you know, as jazz became a smaller thing. Whereas Tony Williams went towards rock jazz deck. Dejanette started jazz with Charles Lloyd. He went into rock and fusion. You know, a lot of jazz guys had the facility and then they just went to play rock. And some of them are like, nope, I'm a purist. I'm straight ahead. And they stayed till they died. So seeing all these paths kind of helped me figure out what I'm going to do. And it's like learning to adapt. But at the same time, protecting the passion—it's like I'm trying to get a balance between all of them.
1: Yeah, you My can. It's like we were saying earlier: like you can adapt yourself out of your own identity.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so it's those stories were, were super duper, you know, helpful. Leslie Ming, who's a great '80s session drummer, he played on "Borderline" by Madonna. I mean, he—he's like a monster session player and he was younger so he came he was in the 80s doing sessions alongside the drum machines and he became a. I used to go to his gigs and carry his drums just so i could watch his feet from backstage like <laughs> in the last few years he would get like gigs on yachts i'd be like yo les let me carry your drums so i can watch you and then, you yeah. know i would sit there and watch him. you know what i mean and, and and absorb things and he would tell me stories and he would just say like what happened in the 80s and 90s so many drummers were out of work and he had to adapt to and you know, he just went into going into a rock band and and doing different things. So,
1: yeah. And I think when you, when you talk about adapting, like, um, you know, some, some people could take, I mean, that word can mean two different things. It can mean doing something different. Uh, but I think for us, it, it like, we're better served if we use that word to mean like finding a different way to do what you want to do. We do. Yeah. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, because I've learned in my short time in this, chops ain't everything. You know, it's
1: it's hardly that. anything.
0: <laughs> it's that, and, 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 you know, but no, I've taken jobs from drummers who were technically better than me, mm-hmm. like three or four years into playing, because I showed up a half hour early to set up my drums and Can you give me the show? Do you am I am I too loud? Am I too like I'm at because to me I'm new and I just don't want to fuck this up. Mm-hmm. So I'm being super considerate. Like, if, is everything okay? Like I'm, I'm almost like. I'm trying to be confident, but then I'm in my head, I'm second guessing myself. And and you know, it's like the care I took to, to be a professional. They're like, No, you got the job. He said, We're not worried about you, you're gonna learn. You mm-hmm. know, through rote and through practice and rehearsal and playing gigs, you're gonna learn. You know, I might the guy who I replaced was had speed and chops and everything, but he was late, he had an ego. So your attitude gets you a lot of work and i remember the band i'm one of the bands i'm in now i had an audition and um the day i auditioned i interviewed steve ferone for my column and Hmm. when when the when the tape stopped rolling i said hey man i got this audition in about five hours i'm nervous as hell man (laughs) i'm like and he said just play he said just play the tune he said Hmm. don't try to get fancy don't try to show what you can do just play the song (laughs) <laughs> i was like is that simple he's like it's that simple he said if they want more they'll ask for more just play the song and i got the gig yeah so like and i still have that gig and i've you know we did our mid-major tour opening for nick waterhouse last year you know and i'm playing for two thousand people on weekends and 300 on weeknights and i owe that to steve Rowe, yeah. i probably would have gone in there trying to put up fills and trying to be super funky and i just played the tune exactly as i heard it and then it's like you got the gig, but you could do a little more, you know. I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so
1: I had the same experience recently when I was I was doing I was tracking some drums uh, for a remote client, um, and he sent me this song. He was a producer, and like I put I put a lot of time and thought into constructing like an intro groove, a verse groove, a chorus groove. All of which, like they weren't they weren't they weren't super complex, but they weren't uh, stock, you know. Yeah, Like they, they incorporated some Toms. I grabbed some 16th note phrases from other parts of the band, you know, Mm -hmm. and like, I put a thing together and I was like super excited about it and I sent it to him. Um, and you know, his, his feedback while very polite and constructive (laughs) made it, made it clear that I got too cute by half and like, just play the song, (laughs) you know? Yeah, because
0: you're playing for other musicians. You're, they don't really care. We're nerds for our instrument. Right. So it's kind of like like if you want a bass player to be solid, like you don't want him to be, you know, doing jocko runs. Yeah. You know, but but uh, but you know, they might feel like another bass player is listening. So it's natural and it's gonna happen with us. It's hard to squash it entirely because it's part of who we are. We all want to get better, and we want to show that we're getting better, but sometimes it's just like it's, i always say steve jordan in the quarter note is just like you know yeah just
1: and when it comes to like you know the you said uh farone was like uh you know if they want more they'll ask for it and yeah. it 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 feels so much better to get the feedback like that was great do more than it yeah. is to get the feedback like that was not good do less <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. It's it's easier to add on than it yeah. is to knock a building down. You could add to a building, it's easier than knocking it down and trying to build on the first floor. You know what I mean? Like, right, so.
1: right. And just psychologically, like the, the first one is like, you know, it's an affirmation, like do more. And then yeah. the the second one, it like it, it, it can be hard to it can be hard for your ego. Like, you know, this this thing that came out of you, this thing that you put so much thought into there, they're like, no, (laughs) (laughs) one one is a yes. The other is a no.
0: Right. And I never had the time to get church chops. So my first instinct, my best friend, as I was transitioning from break beats and studio stuff into playing live with bands was to just be as likable as possible (laughs) and to, and, and, and to groove as hard as I possibly can. Yeah. And, when and you th- look at those the are the same thing,
1: like be likable and <laughs> groove like. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and when you look at the bass player and he's smiling, yep. you just want to keep doing more. Yep. And then they'll be like, nah, man, you can hit the Tom. I was <laughs> 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 like, you sure? Know, so, um, so yeah, you know, like, I think the, I never had an ego because I think coming late into this made me kind of self-conscious and feel like everybody was looking at me sideways. So it made me feel like it made me my, my first instinct is always to groove because it's just like, if I make them happy, then, you know, and, and it's proven time and time again, to work, you know, I don't have the ego from years of chops, you know, it's just like, I have my own thing, my own sound. I, you know, and I'm confident in my sound and my playing now, but it's like, I'm not going to try to reach for something that's totally out. And I'm not going to worry about drummers in the crowd who were like watching every note I'm playing, you know, like because that's the good way to get. I remember reading the thing where, you know, Shelly Mann won the downbeat poll one year and Buddy Rich came to his gig and just started intimidating them, like laughing. <laughs> and hey, hey, Are they going to swing anytime soon? Like he's saying this so Shelly could hear it. And oh, You can tell he was getting to Shelly. You know what I mean? Yeah. I read that and I read something about, you know. I read that like on a forum or something that, you know, with the downbeat pole, but he didn't like coming in. You know? And it's like, it gets in your head. So whenever there's like drummers from other bands, it's just like, I try to just, you have to just block it. It's like playing a sport. You have to block out the crowd. You, you just have to make sure the audience is, is feeling the music and your bandmates are happy and you're comfortable and, and grooving.
1: And the other thing to know? remember about like, you know, other drummers watching you is that, you know, we, we get it in our head that the other drummers want to see the drummy shit. You know, yeah, and some yeah. of some of them do, but a lot of drummers are like us. Like we want to see the Steve Jordan play the fucking quarter notes, and anytime we see yeah. a drummer do that, like that's when we're like, oh shit, yeah.
0: And, and here's one story. I'll just say, I did a festival called Limb Snapping Festival. Called what? Limb snapping. Okay. It was in upstate New York, summer of 2019. Okay. The place was a mud fest. You had to walk down a one mile mud trail to get to the stage. Oh, God. My shoes, I had everything. We were all caked in mud. There were flies everywhere. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> so we get, and, and the stage is in the middle of the woods. So we're back in the woods. And I'm like, oh, God. I'm like, well, this is paying dues. So I'll do it. But I'm like, man. Saturday night gig and like I'm behind the stage, but you can't see the stage cause there's like tarp all around the stage with banners and sponsors. So I can't see who's sitting in the drum chair. I can only see under the cloth. I can see his feet. I can't see him. There's a power trio playing and this drummer's doing like these crazy linear fills and this crazy bottom stuff, triplets. And he's just, just rocking. And I'm just like, man, that guy's got some shit. And then, you know, he gets off the stage. I go on. We go up in there and do our sweet soul. I'm just playing like Motown grooves, funk grooves, you know, the core, You know Ghost Noting. Just grooving, man, playing that soul. And there's this guy in the front row like, yo, you be shedding, man. <laughs> you got that. Keep playing that, man. He's like, yo, you said, yo, you got that funk, man. There's one guy in the front screaming. I was like, is he high? <laughs> I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, yo. He's like, yo. And then I'm like, so I get off the stage and he comes up to me. He's like, yo, man, yo, you, he said, yo, I haven't seen nobody play like that. Like, yo, you have, yo, you got a funk, you got a nice touch. You don't hit too high. He's like, yo, you, he said, you shed, man, you got a groove. I was like, yo, I appreciate it, man. And then I go walk to start putting my gear on the side under a tree because there's was a tree on the side where we had all our gear pop.
1: Right, the gear tree, like, the gear tree at the festival, the gear tree.
0: <laughs> and then he walks over with he walks over with me, and I'm like, "Why is this guy coming where the musicians are? He's in the crowd." And then he goes through the stuff by the tree, and he's like, "I'm looking for my cymbal bag. Have you seen it?" I was like, <laughs> "Cymbal bag." He was like, "Yeah, I played." He was like, "I, I, I was in the band right before you." i was like what <laughs> that was you yeah. I, was, I was i couldn't i couldn't i could hear you but i couldn't see you and i was like yo before i went on i was intimidated as hell by what you were playing and i was mm-hmm. like i'm not going to be able to match that energy and he was like what <laughs> and He just started cracking up and it's like mutual admiration yeah for two people that do like like what i was doing was like damn this ain't nothing but to him it was exotic and what he was doing was a day at the office. And to me, it was exciting. Yeah. Right.
1: That's a great illustration of, of like the, the drum world. Cause I think, you know, we, we get it in our heads that there's like the chops camp and the grooves camp and that they're enemies, you know? And I've, I've, no. I've like, I've had that mentality in my head before, um, where yeah. I, I just like react negatively to uh, you know, a, a drummer because because of you know the the choppiness or whatever, um, and I think that's that's such a great story because it, it illustrates how you know d- drummers of opposite styles or opposite approaches are generally likely to have like a ton of admiration for each other. It's because like ho- you know you did that I can't do that. Holy shit, that was amazing. That's not me, but
0: yeah. <laughs> and the funny th- and the funny thing is when we started nerding out. We have the same influences yeah just came out a way. <laughs> right. Purdy,
1: right purdy
0: purdy gad dejanette
1: cobham you know, Mitch, like, yeah, Bond, yeah.
0: like yeah yeah we all like the same we all like the same guys yeah and it's like but but it just, with him it came out in like you know linear tom foot fills and with me it came out with like ghost notes and drags and you know yeah you know 16th note bass drum shit and it just it just manifested different and that story i always say that that story showed me like just do your thing, man. And if somebody doesn't like it, that's cool too. But just do your thing, because that night everybody was happy. The band was happy. I, you know, a drummer I admired admired what I was doing, and I felt good. And I'm caked in mud, but I'm happy. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right, I mean? right. And I had to walk with a coal miner's light on my head to walk up the mud trail back oh, to the camp. Oh my god, that's another, that's another. That's another great snare drum.
1: That's another great metaphor <laughs> for just the music business in general. I'm caked in mud, but I'm happy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly like after the gig you're like yeah you know uh you got to give us back that five dollars that we gave you for gas because they miscalculated oh my and i'm God. like looking at the footage like well at least i got something for ig that looks pretty cool <laughs> and, then you go home and you laugh it off but that's what i'm saying like that's with drumming like i'm not gonna allow that kind of stuff to ruin ruin my experience because i'm passionate about it i love it and i just i can't go back to where i was 10 years ago that's just not an option so whatever it takes to stay happy but still focused and disciplined and serious you know that's what i'm trying to do you know
1: yeah man it was it was great talking to you this was like this was a shot in the arm and and a shot in the brain for me um, Thanks, especially, no, especially just, at the just... beginning of this year, like we're starting a new year. It feels like, you know, in, in pretty much every way, uh, either on a personal level or a national level, we're kind of like starting a new chapter here. So, so yeah. it was a good, it's a good note to start on here.
0: Yeah, man. Now this is, this is amazing, man. I lo- and I actually, Jordan hooked me up with Damon too, uh, Discussions of percussion. I spoke to him yesterday. Yeah, yeah. We so, should shout
1: out. Jor- Jordan Rose made this happen. He hooked us up. So yeah, so Jordan, thanks to Shout Jordan. out to
0: Jordan. Jordan Rose, man. And and I want to also just thank all the modern, you know, well, the drummers who are out there doing it, who've been supportive of me, with you know, to me with this, because mm-hmm. I was always, I was very self conscious coming in because I didn't know anybody. So you know, uh, shout out to John Wicks from Fits in the Tantrums. He's been super cool. George Slupik. Uh, Jordan Rose, Mike Duffy, uh great LA player.
1: Yeah, we had Duffy well, on the podcast a couple years ago. I know him. Mike
0: is one of my Mike is one of my friends. Me and Mike talked for four hours, man, about life. And, <laughs> and like we we like Mike is Mike has been so helpful on this. He's the one who's telling me, yo, do what you're doing. Don't try to get caught up in the drummy drummy stuff. Just right. do what you're doing. You know, Guy Lacato, who does the reflex pads you know, can play jungle, got chops out. He said, Yo, do what you're doing. Mario Kalire, same thing. Yep. You know, Adam Deitch, same thing. Mm-hmm. Daru Jones, same thing. You yep. know, even Quest Love, they've they've all been very supportive, you know, and encouraging. You yeah. know.
1: And as, just as incidentally, calling. like all of those guys you mentioned, none of them are a jack of all trades. They all have a yeah. thing. They're known for it. They've chased it. That you know, that's that's what we've been talking about this whole time. Um, yeah, man. And, so and, and people can people can check out the do rights on Spotify and wherever else. Correct.
0: Yes, Bandcamp, Spotify, everywhere, Apple Music, and yeah. your
1: your breakbeat records are uh, available on your website. Or through your yeah, they're on
0: they're on they're on Bandcamp and then if you go to the drum broker, which is HipHopSamples hip hop samples, hip hop like all the volumes are there. And then I have the vinyl on my bandcamp, um Jzone.bandcamp cool. And my, my website has everything. If you go to GoVillainGo.com or follow me on Instagram, JZone.IG IG, everything is there, man. Cool. And um you And
1: know, those interviews so. those interviews you did are are still available, correct? Either yeah, in, in all, uh, print or the audio versions?
0: Uh, there are a text and audio. If you go to my website, just the, give the drummer some tab at the top. It'll lead you to the Red Bull site for the print and it'll lead you to my SoundCloud for the audio uh, cool. uh, for the ones that I did, the actual radio show. Cool. So, um, yeah, man, it's it's uh, it's all there. It's
1: a lot to dig into there.
0: Yeah, cool. yeah. So,
1: man, thank you for talking. This was really fun.
0: Well, Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it.
1: There you go. J-Zone. What a cat. Hope you dug that and thanks again to him. Next week, Matt Krauss will be talking with Anthony Grimani from Sonitus USA. Sonitus is a company that specializes in studio sound treatment, and Anthony and Matt are going to be talking all about ways to treat home studio spaces. There will also be a video component to this episode on YouTube, so I'm looking forward to that. It should be really interesting and enlightening. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers.